We're in John's Gospel in our afternoon services. If you could turn with me to John 19. We'll read 16 to 42, John 19. I'll pray as we read God's word. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the gift of your words, your revelation to us. Holy Spirit, help me to speak well of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, in whose name I pray. Amen. It's interesting that on Thursday night at our Bible study, we were studying the Apostles' Creed and we came to the line, he was... He died and was buried, and uh, so we come to John's Gospel now, and we looked at Matthew on Thursday night, read Luke at the earlier. So John's Gospel 19, verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfil the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour his disciple the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfil the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, that they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, 
they will look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arithamea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word. This is John's account of the crucifixion. And the, the record is, supplement, is supplemented and complemented by what we read in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And it is providential that we looked at Matthew on Thursday, we read Luke at the beginning of the service. The variations that you see are the kind of variations you would find in three different newspapers or news media outlets reporting on the same event. Several days this week I looked at three or more news outlets and while you read an account of the same happening, you discover the way that it is nuanced by each of the media sites, often has a distinctive quality of its own. And that is the mark, the very discrepancies, the idiosyncrasies of the record, is a mark, not of collusion, but clearly a mark of integrity. It's clearly a mark of integrity. I wouldn't associate integrity with the media today. One of the most concerning things to me is selected stories are reported on and others are not. You don't have to agree with everything, but I do agree with them having the right to say it. That actually has huge ramifications for us as a church. The bill that is coming next year to ban conversion therapy for sexual attraction. I'm not for any form of therapy or treatment in that sense. But we must pray earnestly now that the freedom to pray for anyone struggling with sin, Romans 2 as well as Romans 1, is upheld. Because if we're unable to pray for someone tempted by sin, then we by default will not be able to preach or teach what is, what is in God's word. So we should be earnestly in prayer for that today. So first of all, I want us to see the striking scene. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table and we come to this account in John's Gospel. We see a striking scene, first of all. And what made the crucifixion so significant that the man hanging on the middle tree, the centre cross, was none other than God incarnate. The scene that is described while striking to us was a familiar scene for that day in the framework of the Roman jurisdiction. The soldiers were carrying out their business as usual. In one sense, it was a regular day. The great event that was being carried out here was so much more significant than these four soldiers. I don't know whether you've thought of that, I only... It hit me this week. Four soldiers attached to every cross. 
and everyone who was to be crucified. It was far more significant than they would have ever realised. Indeed, eternity, as it were, was closing its eyes to the scene as darkness descends over the whole event. It was almost as though that, as in the time of the Passover in the book of Exodus, where God turned the lights out, so he turns the lights out again. Alas, and did my Saviour bleed, and did my Sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond decree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Ordinarily, the procession that would have led to this event would have begun in the relatively early hours of the morning before it became oppressively hot and four soldiers were assigned to the one to be crucified. In other words, there would have been 12 soldiers involved with the three who were to be crucified this day. And ordinarily, a centurion would have led the, led the procession. He, the centurion or someone else designated, would carry the sign on which was written the crime of the individual to be crucified. And they would routinely go through the longest route possible to get to the site of crucifixion, thereby prolonging the agony of the individuals concerned and increasing that sense of morbid and cruel expectation on part of the crowds that began to throng in their wake. Probably know it's in the news and it's sometimes on TV. In America, family members or victims, they were, I'm not sure, maybe they still are for all I know, invited to watch the death penalty being executed. For myself, I, I, I would find that and watching it an abhorrent act. I guess maybe those who've been so deeply wounded would see it in a different way. I've never been interested in watching the death penalty. It's a dreadful thing to watch another die. And I find it strange that some who would not, eat, not be able to take their dogs to the vets to have them put down would find that they can sit in front of a glass and watch another human die. But of course it is no surprise in that because it wasn't simply a handful that would have been involved on that day, but a great crowd. And it would seem that the ordinary processes were in some measure bypassed. That when you put all the pieces together, you discover that this scene would have emerged first of all from the palace of Herod. They would come down from Herod's palace. They would have entered through the first gate in the wall from there, a gate that has been known by a variety of names throughout the years. At one point it was called the Gate of St Thomas, into the dense business quarter of the town. And the people standing and on the streets and watching and wondering at the strange sign that was carried by the one who led this group. And finally, they got or they would get to the place of crucifixion, as John recorded and as Luke recorded it earlier, that was the place of the scar. And there they crucified the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that there's no great emphasis given 
to the actual physicality of his sufferings, it is, as one commentator well said, the soul of Christ's sufferings were really in the sufferings of his soul. That isn't to say that his physical sufferings were not in any way mitigated because they were not. When you read the associated material, you discover that that taste that was given to him on the end of that hyssop reed was sufficient for him to realise that there was an anaesthetic dimension to it. And as a result, the Saviour pushes it back and chooses not to take it. So that all the pain and all the agony which was to be meted out to him, physical, mental, spiritual, Christ in his human nature really did experience. Jesus died homeless, largely friendless, wracked by pain and the most cruel of deaths. And if there's anyone here this afternoon who finds themselves saying, I find myself in a situation where it seems like there's no one else in the world that understands me. I do not think that anyone could ponder the extent of the pain that I know. Well, when you read this record, you discover that of all people, Jesus really does. Jesus certainly does. The crucifixion, although when we see it in art, whereby the people are looking up to the cross, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, and it would seem that there was some great distance between them. In matter of fact, when the centrepiece, when the vertical piece of the cross was lowered into the ground and the feet were fastened eventually to it, the feet would only be 18 or 24 inches from ground level. So rather than seeing men high up, hanging up there, to whom they'd have to shout, because you often wonder, because you can hear, there's, there's an account of what they heard. They're actually in great proximity to people on ground level. Hence this ability in all of the Gospels to hear the words of Jesus from the cross. So, th th it, that, so, so, so that was the scene. The second is this significant sign. The people looked at this sign and the Jews were annoyed about it. They, they, they said, we don't want it to say the king of the Jews. We want it to say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate just said, what I have written, I have written. And in the middle of it, the soldiers carried on their work. The sign written in Aramaic, that which was written by the, spoken by the Jews of Palestine, written in Latin, the official language of the Roman government, written in Greek, for that was the language of commerce and culture in the Roman world. So if you like, the whole world was able to read this sign, this significant sign, pointing to the fact that he who was purported to be the king of the Jews was actually the king of a spiritual kingdom. And a kingdom, which Luke's Gospel brings out well, isn't it? into which one of the men on his side determined that he would like to be a part. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And how staggered he must have been when Jesus said, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The man presumably knew enough to say that if this was a man and if he had a kingdom, whenever it was going to happen, it surely was not going to happen soon, but whenever it did happen, 
Lord, will you remember me when that kingdom gets going? And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. The soldiers did what they normally did. They divided the clothes they added to their own wardrobes to keep or to sell. Within a matter of hours, there undoubtedly would have been people on the Jerusalem streets, maybe wearing the clothes that Jesus wore in this procession to Golgotha. Someone may well have said, they're nice sandals, where did you get them? And it would be commonplace to say, I got them from the scene yesterday. The writer is careful to say they didn't deal with the undergarment in the same way. Do not tear it, they said. This is nice, let us decide by lot who will get it. Not realising for a moment they were fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures, where in the psalmist's prophecy it says, they divided my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. If you think about this for a moment, it's easy to say, well, these are different days now. It wouldn't have been like this today. We are a far more humane society. We would have stepped back from this kind of thing. I don't know whether you've ever read any of the poems of Jeffrey Studdart Kennedy. This is one, when Jesus came to Birmingham. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were cruel, crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained, the winter rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see. Jesus crouched against the wall and cried for Calvary. Now that's, no, that's a poem and that is not scripture, but whether the response of the human heart is of callous, vehement hatred, or casual, cruel indifference, each of us finds our face in the crowd described in the record by John. So there was a sign, and it hung, and it was significant. And there is a love that was displayed, and it was powerful. Four soldiers, four shares, four women. He said the soldiers did these things, that were standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four soldiers, four partitions, four women. And you know, when you look at this, I'll say this to the men here, it is a reminder to us of the way that God, is, in his amazing providence, has chosen to weave into his purposes the strength of character that women have. The incorrectly named, I'm not sure it's ever named, is that the weaker sex doesn't look so weak before the cross. It looks incredibly strong. The lady, the sister of Jesus' mother, is Salome, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. And you may remember her if you know your Bible. 
Her life had been changed as a result of Jesus. Her boys followed Jesus. And she'd followed them around a little bit. And it was her who made that request to Jesus on behalf of her sons to see if when he came into his kingdom, her two boys could sit either side of him. When he established the seats at that point, Jesus rebuked her, necessarily so. But she saw the love and the rightness, and she is at the cross. Mary Magdalene, or Mary from Magdala, in whose life had been seven demons, she of all women knew this man was no simple man, it wasn't simply a man. He was a saviour and a friend. Then the real significance in relationship to Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not emotional but theological. The love of the Lord Jesus for her is the love of saviour for sinner. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby. She had borne him. She had worried over him. She had watched him. She had loved him. She had cared for him. She now watched him die. And surely the designation that Jesus uses from the cross, woman, behold your son, perhaps was to lessen the pain of calling to her mother. But now she, as the others, must learn that the right response for her is not that of compassion, ultimately, but for adoration. Adoration. That the real significance of the relationship of Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not emotional but theological. That the love of the Lord Jesus is the love of Saviour for sinner, because that is the greatest love. So there is a sign it's full of significance. Here he is, the king of the Jews. The scene is touched with bitterness and pain. The soldier's indifference is a result of the routineness of the act. And over 2,000 years later, we pause this afternoon to worship, adore, and remember it again. Let me give you three words as I draw this part of the service to a close. Why would it ever be significant for us to think on these things? I don't think we dwell on them enough. Because the one hanging on the cross is a sacrifice for sin. A sacrifice for sin. It's a word, sin, that is not used in the world today. If people accept that they've got anything wrong with them, it's not because of sin. It's because they're a victim. It's because of the way they were brought up. It's because of something that has happened to them. But the only way of salvation, my dear friend, is to recognise that we're sinners and we need a saviour. Throughout the Old Testament, when you read it, you discover that the basis of the sacrificial system was propitiation, which is a big word, but it means that one died in the place of another and was bearing the wrath of God that was rightly meted out on sin. And God's wrath was averted by the pale of a price and the bearing of the guilt. When you look upon that cross, say to yourself in the words of the hymn writer, wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions and now I am free. All because Jesus was wounded 
for me. Dying for me. Dying for me. There on the cross, he was dying for me. Now in his death, my redemption I see. All because Jesus was dying for me. Risen for me. Risen for me. Up from the grave, he has risen for me. Now evermore from death's sting, I am free. All because Jesus has risen for me. Living for me. Living for me. Up in the skies, he is living for me. Daily he is pleading and praying for me. All because Jesus is living for me. Coming for me. Coming for me. Soon in the air he is coming for me. Then with what joy his dear face I shall see. Oh, I shall praise him. He is coming for me. The man on the cross is a sacrifice. The man on the cross is a substitute. When in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of, book of Leviticus, you read of the way this was enacted. You may know it, the scapegoat upon the head. The high priest put his hands on the head of the scapegoat and drove it out into the wilderness as a symbol of the fact that sin was transferred to this creature and was being borne away. And Jesus dies on the cross for us as my substitute. Hell came to Calvary and Jesus entered into it. He bore my shame. You know the shame of sin? Sin's always secret, it's always shameful. He bore my, all of my scoffing, all of my rebellion. He took my place. He took my place. But it's possible to be orthodox in our understanding of sacrifice, substitute, and not know him as friend and saviour. Because what we see on the cross is a sacrifice, is a substitute, but praise God as saviour. Praise God as saviour. And when Matthew tells us at the very beginning of this, they named him Jesus, she, she will bear a son, you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the question this afternoon, 2021, is not, was he a sacrifice? Or was he a substitute? Or did he die as saviour? But the question for all of us is the most important question of all. Is Jesus your saviour? Is he my saviour? Because it's possible to be orthodox in our understanding and not know him as friend and saviour. When the lady, when the woman of John 4 encountered Jesus and Jesus asked for a drink, she was, be, she was surprised and he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she took it in physical terms as if somehow or other Jesus was suggesting that she would no longer need to drink water, no longer need to come to the well. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And when she discovered, when the woman of John 4 discovered the wonder of what that meant, you remember she ran into the city, she hurried into the city and she said, come see a man. 
because she had tasted and she had learned that the Lord is good. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Jesus, sac sacrifice, substitute and saviour. Amen.